Hello and welcome to The Mayor Zine, an audio magazine of vintage and not-so-vintage fiction curated and presented by me, your host, Chris Mayer. Well, happy Memorial Day, everybody. Not that it's really a happy holiday, but it doesn't have to be sad. Today is a day where we remember and celebrate those military personnel who died while serving their country. Unofficially, it's the start of summer here in the United States and the kickoff to barbecue season. You may be interested to note that it didn't become a federal holiday until 1971. Before then, it was observed on a state-by-state basis on May 30th as Decoration Day. Ironically, we have no more war stories for you this week. Instead, more May Day lessons learned, a bit of L. Frank Baum whimsy, and a very dandy Steve. Let's start with Steve and take a trip to the Adirondack Wilderness. Dandy Steve by Helen Jackson Everything in this world is relative, and nothing more so than the significance of the same word in different localities. If Dandy Steve had walked Broadway in the same clothes which he habitually wore in the Adirondack wilderness, not only would nobody have called him a dandy, but everyone would have smiled sarcastically at the suggestion of that epithet's being applied to him. Nevertheless, Dandy Steve was the name by which he was familiarly known all through the Saranac region and judging by the wilderness standard, the adjective was not undeserved. No such flannel shirts, no such jaunty felt hats, no such neckties had ever been worn by Adirondack guides as Dandy Steve habitually wore. And as for his buckskin trousers, they would not have disgraced the Sioux chief. Always of the softest and yellowest skins, always daintily made, the seams set full of leather fringes and sometimes marked by lines of delicate embroidery in white quills. There were those who said that Dandy Steve had an Indian wife somewhere in the Upper Saranac, but nobody knew, and it would have been a bold man who asked an intrusive question of Dandy Steve or ventured on any impertinent jesting about his private affairs. Certain it was that none but Indian hands embroidered the fine buckskins he wore. But then there were such buckskins for sale. Perhaps he bought them. A man who would spend the money he did for neckties and fine flannel shirts would not stop at any extravagance in the price of trousers. The buckskins, however, were not the only evidence in this case. There was a well-authenticated tale of a brilliant red shawl, a woman's shawl, and a pair of silver bangles once seen in Dandy Steve's cabin. A man had gone in upon him suddenly one evening without the formality of knocking. Such foolish conventionalities were not in vogue on the Saranac. This was before Steve took to guiding. It was in the first year after he appeared in that region, while he was living like a hermit alone, or supposed to be alone, in a tiny log cabin on an island not much bigger than his cabin. This man, Old Ben, the oldest guide there, having been hindered at some of the portages and finding himself too late to reach his destination that night, seeing the glimmer of light from Steve's cabin, 
had rowed to the island, landed, and with the thoughtless freedom of the country, walked in at the half-open door. He was fond of telling the story of his reception, and as he told it, it had a suspicious sound, and no mistake. Steve was sitting in a big armchair before his table. Over the arm of the chair was flung the red shawl. On the table lay an open book and the silver bangles in it, as if someone had just thrown them off. At the sound of entering footsteps, Steve sprang up with an angry oath and hastily closing the book, threw it and the bangles into the chair from which he had risen and crowded the shawl down upon them into as small a compass as possible. His eyes blazed like lightning, or sharper, said old Ben, and I declare to ye I was scared. For a minute, I thought he was a lunatic, sure as death, but in a minute more, he was all right and there couldn't nobody treat a feller handsomer than he did me that night and the next morning. But I took notice that the first thing he'd done was to heave a big blanket kind of careless-like into the chair and cover the things clean up. And then in a little while, he says, a-sweeping the whole bundle up in his arms, I'll just clear up this little mess and give ye a comfortable chair to sit in. And he carried it all, blanket, book, bracelet, shawl and all, into the next room and throwed them on the floor in a pile in one corner. The one but them two rooms to the cabin, so that won't any place for her to be hid if so be as there was any woman around. And he said he was living alone, and had been ever since he come. And it was nigh a year then since he come, so I never knowed what to make on it. And I don't suppose there's anybody do's know any more than I do. But if them wasn't women's gear he had out there that night, I ain't never seen any woman's gear, that's all. Whomsoever they was, I ain't no idea, nor how they got there. But they was women's gear. Dandy as Steve is, he couldn't have had any use for such a shawl as that, let alone saying what he'd wanted of bracelets on his arms. That so was the universal ejaculation of Ben's audience when he reached this point in the narrative, and there seemed to be little more to be said on either side. This was all there was of the story. It must stand in each man's mind for what it was worth, according to his individual bias of interpretation. But it had become an old story long before the time at which our later narrative of Dandy Steve's history began. So old, in fact, that it had not been mentioned for years, until the events now about to be chronicled revived it in the minds of Steve's associates and fellow guides. Before the end of Steve's first year in his wilderness retreat, he had become as conversant with every nook and corner of its labyrinthian recesses as the oldest guides in the region. Not a portage, not a shortcut unfamiliar to him. Not a narrow winding brook wide enough for a canoe to float in that he did not know. He had spent all his days and many of his nights in these solitary wanderings. Visitors to the region grew wanted to the sight of the comely figure in the slight birch canoe, shooting suddenly athwart their track, or found lying idly in some dark and shaded stream bed. On the approach of strangers, he would instantly away, lifting his hat courteously if there were ladies in the boats he passed, otherwise taking no more note of the presence of human beings than that of the deer or the wild fowl on the water. He was not a handsome man but there was a something in his face at which all looked twice, men as well as women. It was an unfathomable look, partly of pain, partly of antagonism. His eyes habitually sought the sky, yet they did not seem to perceive what they gazed upon. It was as if they would pierce beyond it. What a strange face was a common ejaculation on the part of those thus catching glimpses of his upturned countenance. More than once efforts were made by hunters who encountered him to form his acquaintance but they were always courteously repelled. Finally, he came to be spoken of as the hermit. 
and it was with astonishment, almost incredulity, that in the spring of his third year in the Adirondacks, he was found at Paul Smith's, offering his services as guide to a party of gentlemen, who, their guide having fallen suddenly ill, were in sore straits for someone to take them down again through the lakes. Whether it was that he had grown suddenly weary of his isolation and solitude, or whether need had driven him to this means of earning money, no one knew, and he did not say. But once having entered on the life of a guide, he threw himself into it as heartily as if it had been his lifelong avocation, and speedily became one of the best guides in the region. It was observed, however, that whenever he could do so, he avoided taking parties in which there were ladies. Sometimes, for a whole season, it would happen that he had not once been seen in charge of such a party. Sometimes, when it was difficult, in fact impossible, for him to assign any reason for refusing to go with parties containing members of the opposite sex, he would at the last moment privately entreat some other guide to take his place, and, voluntarily relinquishing all the profits of the engagement, disappear and be lost for several days. During those absences, it was often said, Steve's gone to see his wife, or off with that Indian wife of his up north and these vague, idle, gossiping conjectures slowly crystallized into a positive rumor which no one could either trace or gainsay. And so the years went on. One, two, three, four, and Dandy Steve had become one of the most popular and best-known guides in the Adirondack country. His seeming effeminacy of attire had been long proved to mark no effeminacy of nature, no lack of strength. There was not a better shot, a stronger rower on the list of summer guides, nor a better cook and provider. Every party which went out under his care returned with warm praise for Steve, with a friendly feeling also, which would in many instances have warmed into familiar acquaintance if Steve would have permitted it. But with all his cheerfulness and obliging goodwill, he never lost a certain quantity of reserve. Even the men whose servant he was for the time being were insensibly constrained to respect this and to keep the distance he, not they, determined. There remained always something they could not, as the phrase was, make out about him. His aversion to women was well known, so much so that it had come to be a tacitly understood thing that parties of which women were members need not waste their time trying to induce Dandy Steve to take them in charge. But fate had not lost sight of Steve yet. He had had his period of solitary independence, of apparent absolute control of his own destinies. His seven years were up. If he had supposed that he was serving them, like Jacob of old, for that best beloved mistress, freedom, he was mistaken. The seven years were up. How little he dreamed what the eighth would bring him. It was midsummer, and one of Steve's best patrons, Richard Cravath of Philadelphia, had not yet appeared. For three summers, Mr. Cravath and two or three of his friends had spent a month in the Adirondacks, hunting, fishing, camping under Steve's guidance. They were all rich men and generous, and what was to Steve of far more worth than the liberal pay, considerate of his feelings, tolerant of his reticence. Not a man of them but respected their queer, silent guide's individuality as much as if he had been a man of their own sphere of life. Steve had learned, by some unpleasant experience, that this delicate consideration did not always obtain between employers and employed. It takes an organization finer than the ordinary to perceive and live up to the perception that the fact that you have hired a man for a certain sum of money per month to cook your food or drive your horses gives you no right to ask him in regard to his private, personal affairs, prying questions which you would not dare to put to common acquaintances in society. As week after week went by and no news came from Mr. Cravath, Steve found himself really saddened at the thought of not seeing him. 
he had not realized how large a part of his summer's pleasure, as well as profit, came from the month's sport with this Philadelphia party. Wistfully, he scrutinized the lists of arrivals at the different houses day after day for the familiar names, but they were not to be found. At last, after he had given over looking for them, he was electrified one evening in September by having his name called from the piazza of one of the hotels. Steve, is that you? You're just the man I want. I was afraid we were too late to get you. It was Mr. Kravitz, and with him the two friends whom Steve had liked best of all who had been in Mr. Kravitz's parties. It was the joy of the sudden surprise which prevented Steve's giving his customary close attention to Mr. Kravitz's somewhat vague description of the party he had brought this time. You must arrange for eight, Steve, he said. There may not be quite so many. One or two of the fellows I hoped for have not arrived, and it is too late to wait long for anyone. If they are not here by day after tomorrow, we will start. And oh, Steve, he continued, with an affected careless ease, but all the while eyeing Steve's face anxiously, I forgot to mention that I have brought my wife along this time. She positively refused to let me off. She said she was tired of hearing so much about the Adirondacks. She was coming this time to see for herself. You needn't have the least fear about having her along. She's as good a traveler as I am, every bit. I've had her in training at it for 30 years, and I tell her, old as we are, we are better campers than most of the young people. That's so, Mr. Kravath, replied Steve his countenance clouded and his voice less joyous. I'll answer for it with you, but do you think, sir, any lady could go where we went last year? In his heart, Steve was saying to himself, the idea of bringing an old woman out here, I wouldn't do it for anybody in the world but Mr. Kravath. My wife can go anywhere and do anything that I can, Steve, said Mr. Kravath. You need not begin to look blue, Steve, and if you back out or serve us any of your woman-hating tricks such as I've heard of, I'll never speak to you again. Never. I wouldn't serve you any trick, Mr. Kravath, you know that, replied Steve proudly, and I haven't the least idea of backing out. But I am afraid Mrs. Kravath will be disappointed, he added, as he went down the steps and luckily did not turn his head to see Mr. Kravath's face covered with the laughter he had been restraining during the last few moments. Caught him by Jove, he said, turning to his companion, a tall, dark-faced man. Caught him by Jove, Randall. He never once thought to ask of what sex the other members of the party might be. He took it for granted my wife was to be the only woman. Do you think that was quite fair, Kravath? replied Mr. Randall. He would never have taken us in the world if he had known there were three women in the party. Pshaw, laughed Mr. Kravath. Good enough for him for having such a crotchet in his head. We'll take it out of him this trip. Or said it stronger than ever, said Mr. Randall. My mind misgives me. We shall wish we had not done it. He may turn sulky and unmanageable on our hands when he finds himself trapped. I'll risk it, said Mr. Kravath confidently. If I can't bring him around, Helen Wingate will. I never saw the man, woman, child, or dumb beast yet that could resist her. Mr. Randall sighed. Poor child, he said. Isn't her gaiety something wonderful? One would not think to look at her that she had ever had an hour's sorrow, but my wife tells me that she cannot speak of that husband of hers yet without the most passionate weeping. I know it. It's a shame, replied Mr. Kravath, to see a glorious woman like that throwing her life away on a memory. I did have a hope at one time that she would marry again, but I've given it up. If she would have married anyone, it would have been George Walton last winter. No one has ever come so near her as he did but she sent him off at last, like all the rest. The two fellows on whom Mr. Kravath was counting to make up his party of eight did not appear. 
and on the second morning after the above conversations, Steve received orders to have his boats in readiness at 10 o'clock to start with the Kravit party, only six in number. Old Ben was on the wharf as Steve was making his final arrangements. Well, Steve, he said, shifting his quid of tobacco in a leisurely manner from one side of his mouth to the other. You've got a soft thing again. You're a damned lucky fellow, Steve. Dunno whether you know it or not. No, I don't know it, replied Steve curtly. And what's more, I don't believe in luck. Don't you? said Ben reflectively. Well, I do. And Lord knows it ain't because I've seen so much of it. Say, Steve, he added, how'd you come to take on such a lot of women folks this trip? Lot of women folks? What do you mean? shouted Steve. There's no womankind going except one, Mr. Kravitz's wife, and I wish to thunder he'd left her behind. Oh, is that all? said Ben, half innocently, half mischievously. He was not quite sure of his ground. Be the rest on him going to stay here? There's three women in the party. Mr. Randall, he's got his wife, and there's a widow along, too. Mighty fine-looking she is. Aren't nothing old about her, I can tell ye. A flash shot from Steve's eyes. A half-smothered ejaculation came from his lips as he turned fiercely towards Ben. There they be now, all a-coming down the steps, continued Ben, chuckling. I reckon ye got took in for once, but it's too late now. Yes, thought Steve angrily as he looked at the smiling party coming towards the landing. Three men and three women. It's too late now. If it had been a half hour sooner, it would have been early enough. But it's the last time I'm caught in any such way. What a blamed fool I was not to ask who they were. Never thought of the Kravitz set lumbering themselves up with women. And a very unpromising sternness settled down on Steve's expressive features as he stooped down to readjust some of the smaller packages in the boat. Meantime, the members of the approaching party were not wholly at ease in their minds. Mr. Kravath had confessed his suppression of the truth, and Mr. Randall's evident misgiving as to the success of the experiment had proved contagious. If he's as queer as you say, murmured Mrs. Kravath, he can make it awfully disagreeable for us. I am almost afraid to go. Nonsense, cried Helen Wingate merrily. I'll take that out of him before night. Who ever heard of a man's really disliking women? It is only some particular woman he's disliked. He won't dislike us. He shan't dislike me. I'm going to take him by storm. Let me run ahead and jump in first. And she danced on in advance of the rest. Wait, Mrs. Wingate, cried Mr. Kravath, hurrying after her. Let me come with you. But he was too late. She ran on, and as she reached the shore, sprang lightly on the plank, calling out, Oh, there are all our things in already. Guide, guide, please give me your hand, quick. I want to be the first one in the boat. Steve rose slowly, turned. At the first glimpse of his face, Helen Wingate uttered a shriek which rang in the air and fell backwards on the sand, insensible. Good God, she lost her footing, exclaimed Mr. Kravath. She is killed, cried the others, as they hurried breathlessly to the spot. But when they reached it, there knelt Dandy Steve on the ground by her side, his face whiter than hers, his eyes streaming with tears, his arms around her, calling Helen, Helen. At the sound of footsteps and voices, he looked up and instantly seeking Mr. Kravitz's face, gasped, She is my wife, Mr. Kravitz. The dumbness of unutterable astonishment fell on the whole party at these words. But in another second, rallying from the shock, they knelt around the seemingly lifeless woman, trying to arouse her. Presently, she opened her eyes, and seeing Mrs. Randall's face bending above her, said faintly, It's Stephen. I always knew I should find him somewhere. 
and she sank away again into unconsciousness. The party for the lakes must be postponed, that was evident. Neither would it go out under the guidance of Dandy Steve, nor would Mrs. Wingate go with it. Those two things were equally evident. Which facts, revolving slowly in old Ben's brain, led him to seat himself on the shore and abide the course of events? When, about noon, Mr. Kravitz appeared, coming to look after their hastily abandoned effects, old Ben touched his hat civilly and said, Good day, sir. I thought maybe I'd get this job a guiding now. Leastways, I'd stay by your truck here till someone come to look it up. Old Ben was the guide of all others Mr. Kravitz would have chosen, next to Dandy Steve. By Jove, Ben, he said. This is luck. Can you go off with us at once? Steve has got other business on hand. That lady is his wife, from whom he has been separated many years. So I heard him say, sir, when he was a-picking her up, answered Ben, composedly, as if such things were a daily occurrence in the Adirondacks. Can you go with us at once? continued Mr. Kravath. In an hour, sir, said Ben. And in an hour they were off, a bewildered, but on the whole a relieved and happier party than they had been in the morning. Helen Wingate's long sorrow in the mysterious disappearance of her husband had ennobled and purified her character and greatly endeared her to her friends. But that which had seemed to them to be explainable only by the fact of his death or his unworthiness, she knew was explainable by her own folly and pride. The end of the story is best told in old Ben's words. He was never tired of telling it. I never heard exactly the whole particulars, he said for they'd gone long before we got back, and the folks she was with weren't the kind that talks much, but I could see they set a store by her. They'd always liked Steve, too, up here as a guide. They'd never known him while he was a-living with her, else they'd have known him here. But he hadn't lived with her but a mighty little while, as near as I could make out. You see, she was powerful rich, and he hadn't but little. And for all she was so much in love with him, she couldn't help but throwing it up to him, sorta, and he couldn't stand it. So he just lit out, and he'd never had gone back to her, never under the shining sun. He'd got just that grit in him. She'd been a-hunting everywhere, they said, and he was right close to home all the time. He was a first-rate feller, and we was all glad when his luck come to him at last. I wished I could have seen him to have asked him if he didn't believe in luck now. Me and him was talking about luck that very morning while she was a-stepping down the landing towards him as fast ever she could go. My eyes, how that woman did come a-running and a-calling, guide, guide, I shan't never forget it. I asked some of the fellers how she looked when they went off, and they said her eyes was shining like stars. But there wasn't any more of her face to be seen, for she was rolled up in a big red shawl. It gets hot and cold here in September. I've always thought it was that same red shawl he had in his cabin, but I dunno twas. Well, I bet they had a first-rate time on that wedding journey of theirs, said one of Ben's rougher cronies one day at the end of the narrative. Tain't every feller gets the chance of two honeymoons with the same woman. Old Ben looked at him attentively. Youngster, said he, tain't strange, I suppose, young as you be, that you should look at it that way. But you're off, crony. You don't seem to recollect about all them years they'd lost out of their lives. I tell ye, it's kind of harrowing to me. Old's I am, and hain't never felt no call to be married neither. It's kind of harrowing to me yet to think of that woman's yell she give when she seed Steve's face. If there weren't just a whole lifetime of misery in it, besides the joy of finding him, I ain't no judge. I haven't never felt no call to marry, as I said, 
But if I had, I wouldn't have been caught cutting up no such dido as that, or throwing away years of time they might have had together as well as not. There ain't any too much of this life anyhow. Kinda looks to you youngsters if it lasts forever, I know how it is. I ain't forgot nothing, old as I am. But I tell you, when you're old as I am, and look back on it, you'll be surprised to see how short it is. And you'll realize more what a fool man is, or a woman too, and I do suppose they're the foolishest of their two, to waste a minute out on it on quarrels, or any other kind of fooling. I'm curious to know where you thought that story was going. I did have a couple of different theories in mind as I was prepping it, although the twist ending was probably the safest twist ending you could go for. And in those days, it may have actually been kind of surprising. Next up, we have some more L. Frank Baum flights of fancy involving hats, birds, mice, newspaper print, and a nuke whose heart was in the right place. The Enchanted Types by L. Frank Baum One time a nuke became tired of his beautiful life and longed for something new to do. The nukes have more wonderful powers than any other immortal folk, except perhaps the fairies and riles. So one would suppose that a nuke who might gain anything he desired by a simple wish could not be otherwise than happy and contented. But such was not the case with Popopo, the nuke we are speaking of. He had lived thousands of years and had enjoyed all the wonders he could think of. Yet life had become as tedious to him now as it might be to one who was unable to gratify a single wish. Finally, by chance, Popopo thought of the earth people who dwell in cities, and so he resolved to visit them and see how they lived. This would surely be fine amusement, and serve to pass away many wearisome hours. Therefore, one morning, after a breakfast so dainty that you could scarcely imagine it, Popopo set out for the earth, and at once was in the midst of a big city. His own dwelling was so quiet and peaceful that the roaring noise of the town startled him, his nerves were so shocked that before he had looked around three minutes, he decided to give up the adventure and instantly returned home. This satisfied for a time his desire to visit the Earth cities, but soon the monotony of his existence again made him restless and gave him another thought. At night the people slept and the cities would be quiet. He would visit them at night. So at the proper time, Popopo transported himself in a jiffy to a great city where he began wandering about the streets. Everyone was in bed. No wagons rattled along the pavements. No throngs of busy men shouted and hellowed. Even the policemen slumbered slyly, and there happened to be no prowling thieves abroad. His nerves being soothed by the stillness, Popopo began to enjoy himself. He entered many of the houses and examined their rooms with much curiosity. Locks and bolts made no difference to a nuke, and he saw as well in darkness as in daylight. After a time, he strolled into the business portion of the city. Stores are unknown among the immortals, who have no need of money or of barter in exchange. 
So Popopo was greatly interested by the novel sight of so many collections of goods and merchandise. During his wanderings, he entered a millinery shop and was surprised to see within a large glass case a great number of women's hats, each bearing in one position or another a stuffed bird. Indeed, some of the most elaborate hats had two or three birds upon them. Now nukes are the especial guardians of birds and love them dearly. To see so many of his little friends shut up in a glass case annoyed and grieved Popopo, who had no idea they had purposely been placed upon the hats by the milliner. So he slid back one of the doors of the case, gave the little chirping whistle of the nukes that all birds know well, and called, Come, friends, the door is open, fly out. Popopo did not know the birds were stuffed, but stuffed or not, every bird is bound to obey a nuke's whistle and a nuke's call. So they left the hats, flew out of the case, and began fluttering about the room. Poor dears, said the kind-hearted nuke, you long to be in the fields and forests again. Then he opened the outer door for them and cried, Off with you! Fly away, my beauties, and be happy again! The astonished birds at once obeyed, and when they had soared away into the night air, the nuke closed the door and continued his wandering through the streets. By dawn he saw many interesting sights, but day broke before he had finished the city, and he resolved to come the next evening a few hours earlier. As soon as it was dark the following day, he came again to the city, and on passing the millinery shop, noticed a light within. Entering, he found two women, one of whom leaned her head upon the table and sobbed bitterly, while the other strove to comfort her. Of course, Popopo was invisible to mortal eyes, so he stood by and listened to their conversation. Cheer up, sister, said one. Even though your pretty birds have all been stolen, the hats themselves remain. Alas, cried the other, who was the milliner. No one will buy my hats partly trimmed, for the fashion is to wear birds upon them, and if I cannot sell my goods, I shall be utterly ruined. And she renewed her sobbing and the nuke stole away, feeling a little ashamed to realize that in his love for the birds, he had unconsciously wronged one of the earth people and made her unhappy. This thought brought him back to the millinery shop later in the night when the two women had gone home. He wanted in some way to replace the birds upon the hats that the poor woman might be happy again. So he searched until he came upon a nearby cellar full of little gray mice who lived quite undisturbed and gained a livelihood by gnawing through the walls into neighboring houses and stealing food from the pantries. Here are just the creatures, thought Popopo, to place upon the woman's hats. Their fur is almost as soft as the plumage of the birds, and it strikes me the mice are remarkably pretty and graceful animals. Moreover, they now pass their lives in stealing, and were they obliged to remain always upon women's hats, their morals would be much improved. So he exercised a charm that drew all the mice from the cellar and placed them upon the hats in the glass case, where they occupied the places the birds had vacated and looked very becoming, at least in the eyes of the unworldly nuke. To prevent their running about and leaving the hats, Popopo rendered them motionless, and then he was so pleased with his work that he decided to remain in the shop and witness the delight of the milliner when she saw how daintily her hats were now trimmed. She came in the early morning, accompanied by her sister, and her face wore a sad and resigned expression. After sweeping and dusting the shop and drawing the blinds, she opened the glass case and took out a hat. But when she saw a tiny gray mouse nestling among the ribbons and laces, she gave a loud shriek, and dropping the hat, sprang with one bound to the top of the table. 
The sister, knowing the shriek to be one of fear, leaped upon a chair and exclaimed, What is it? Oh, what is it? A mouse, gasped the milliner, trembling with terror. Popopo, seeing this commotion, now realized that mice were especially disagreeable to human beings and that he had made a grave mistake in placing them upon the hats. So he gave a low whistle of command that was heard only by the mice. Instantly they all jumped from the hats, dashed out the open door of the glass case, and scampered away to their cellar. But this action so frightened the milliner and her sister that after giving several loud screams, they fell upon their backs on the floor and fainted away. Popopo was a kind-hearted nuke, but on witnessing all this misery caused by his own ignorance of the ways of humans, he straightway wished himself at home, and so left the poor women to recover as best they could. Yet he could not escape a sad feeling of responsibility, and after thinking upon the matter, he decided that since he had caused the milliner's unhappiness by freeing the birds, he could set the matter right by restoring them to the glass case. He loved the birds and disliked to condemn them to slavery again, but that seemed the only way to end the trouble. So he set off to find the birds. They had flown a long distance, but it was nothing to Popopo to reach them in a second, and he discovered them sitting upon the branches of a big chestnut tree and singing gaily. When they saw the nuke, the birds cried, Thank you, Popopo! Thank you for setting us free! Do not thank me, returned the nuke for I have come to send you back to the millinery shop. Why? demanded a blue jay angrily, while the others stopped their songs. Because I find the woman considers you her property, and your loss has caused her much unhappiness, answered Popopo. But remember how unhappy we were in her glass case, said a robin redbreast gravely. And as for being her property, you are a nuke and the natural guardian of all birds, so you know that nature created us free. To be sure, wicked men shot and stuffed us and sold us to the milliner, but the idea of our being her property is nonsense. Popopo was puzzled. If I leave you free, he said, wicked men will shoot you again, and you will be no better off than before. Pooh! exclaimed the blue jay. We cannot be shot now, for we are stuffed. Indeed, two men fired several shots at us this morning, but the bullets only ruffled our feathers and buried themselves in our stuffing. We do not fear men now. Listen, said Popopo sternly, for he felt the birds were getting the best of the argument. The poor milliner's business will be ruined if I do not return you to her shop. It seems you are necessary to trim the hats properly. It is the fashion for women to wear birds upon their headgear, so the poor milliner's wares, although beautified by lace and ribbons, are worthless unless you are perched upon them. Fashions, said a blackbird solemnly are made by men. What law is there among birds or nukes that requires us to be the slaves of fashion? What have we to do with fashions anyway? screamed the linnet. If it were the fashion to wear nukes perched upon women's hats, would you be contented to stay there? Answer me, Popopo. But Popopo was in despair. He could not wrong the birds by sending them back to the milliner, nor did he wish the milliner to suffer by their loss. So he went home to think what could be done. After much meditation, he decided to consult the king of the nukes, and going at once to his majesty, he told him the whole story. The king frowned. This should teach you the folly of interfering with earth people, he said. But since you have caused all this trouble, it is your duty to remedy it. Our birds cannot be enslaved, that is certain. 
Therefore, you must have the fashions changed, so it will no longer be stylish for women to wear birds upon their hats. How shall I do that? asked Popopo. Easily enough. Fashions often change among the earth people, who tire quickly of any one thing. When they read in their newspapers and magazines that the style is so-and-so, they never question the matter, but at once obey the mandate of fashion. So you must visit the newspapers and the magazines and enchant the types. Enchant the types? echoed Popopo in wonder. Just so. Make them read that it is no longer the fashion to wear birds upon hats. That will afford relief to your poor milliner, and at the same time set free thousands of our darling birds who have been so cruelly used. Popopo thanked the wise king and followed his advice. The office of every newspaper and magazine in the city was visited by the nuke, and then he went to other cities until there was not a publication in the land that had not a new fashion note in its pages. Sometimes Popopo enchanted the types so that whoever read the print would see only what the nuke wished them to. Sometimes he called upon the busy editors and befuddled their brains until they wrote exactly what he wanted them to. Mortals seldom know how greatly they are influenced by fairies, nukes, and riles, who often put thoughts into their heads that only the wise little immortals could have conceived. The following morning, when the poor milliner looked over her newspaper, she was overjoyed to read that no woman could now wear a bird upon her hat and be in style, for the newest fashion required only ribbons and laces. Popopo, after this, found much enjoyment in visiting every millinery shop he could find and giving new life to the stuffed birds, which were carelessly tossed aside as useless. And they flew to the fields and forests with songs of thanks to the good nuke who had rescued them. Sometimes a hunter fires his gun at a bird and then wonders why he did not hit it. But having listened to this story, you will understand that the bird must have been a stuffed one from some millinery shop, which cannot, of course, be killed by a gun. We end this issue with Part 3 of Mayday Gift. Last week, little Abby and Larry made a mess out of building their oratory, but now that they've got it, they're going to show it off. A Mayday Gift by Mary Catherine Crawley For two or three days, Mrs. Clayton suffered the oratory to remain as the children had arranged it. They said their prayers there morning and evening, and to Abby especially, the ridges and patches in the carpet, which now seemed to stare her out of countenance, the pink vases and the candelabra, were a constant reproach for her disobedience. Larry, too, grew to hate the sight of them. He often realized poignantly also that it is not well to be too easily influenced by one's playmates. For if he happened to be late and ran into the room and popped down on his knees in a hurry, 
he was almost sure to start up again with an exclamation caused by the prick of one of the numerous tacks which he had inadvertently left scattered over the floor. When the good mother thought that the admonition which she wished to convey was sufficiently impressed, she had the carpet taken up, repaired as much as possible, and properly laid. Then she hung soft lace curtains at the window, draped the altar anew, took away the pink vases, and put the finishing touches to the oratory. It was now a lovely little retreat. Abby and Larry never tired of admiring it. They went in and out of the room many times during the day, and the image of the Blessed Virgin ever there to greet them, by its very presence taught them sweet lessons of virtue. For who can look upon a statue of Our Lady without being reminded of her motherly tenderness, her purity and love, without finding, at least for a moment, his thoughts borne upward, as the angels bore the body of the dead Saint Catherine from amid the tumult of the world to the holy heights, the very atmosphere of which is prayer and peace. Whenever Abby felt cross or disagreeable, she hid herself in the oratory until her ill humor had passed. This was certainly a great improvement upon her former habit, under such circumstances, of provoking a quarrel with Larry, teasing Delia, and taxing her mother's patience to the utmost. She liked to go there, too, in the afternoon when she came in from play, when twilight crept on and deepened, and the flame of the little altar lamp that her father had given her shone like a tiny star amid the dusk of the quiet room. Larry liked it better when, just after supper, the candles of the candelabra were all lighted and the family gathered around the shrine and said the rosary together. To Abby belonged the welcome charge of keeping the oratory in order, while Larry always managed to have a few flowers for his face, even if they were only dandelions or buttercups. He and his sister differed about the placing of this offering. What a queer boy you are, said Abby to him one day. Your vase has a pretty wild rose painted on it, yet you always set it with the plain side out. Nobody'd know it was anything but a plain white vase. You ought to put it round this way, she added, turning it so that the rose would show. No, I won't, protested Larry, twisting it back again. The prettiest side ought to be toward the Blessed Virgin. Oh, well, to be sure in one way, began Abby. But then the shrine is all for her, and this is only a statue. What difference does it make which side of the vase is toward a statue? And it looks so funny to see the wrong side turned to the front. Someday we'll be bringing Annie Connell and Jack Terrell and some of Mother's friends up here. And just think how they'll laugh when they see it. Larry flushed, but he answered firmly, I don't care. The prettiest side ought to be toward the Blessed Virgin. But it is only a statue, persisted Abby, testily. Of course I know it is only a statue replied her brother, raising his voice a trifle, for she was really too provoking. I know it just as well as you do, but I think Our Lady in Heaven understands that I put the vase that way because I want to give her the best I have, and I don't care whether anyone laughs at it or not. That vase isn't there so Annie Connell or Jack Terrell or anybody else will think it looks pretty, but only for the Blessed Virgin, so there. Larry, having expressed himself with such warmth, subsided. Abby did not venture to turn the vase again. She was vaguely conscious that she had been a little too anxious to show off the oratory, and had thought rather too much of what her friends would say in regard to her arrangement of the altar. It was about this time that Aunt Kitty and her little daughter Claire came to stay a few days with the Claytons. Claire was only four years old. She had light, fluffy curls and brown eyes, and was so dainty and graceful that she seemed to Abby and Larry like a talking doll when she was comparatively quiet, and a merry, roguish fairy when she romped with them. 
How do you happen to have such lovely curls? Asked Abby of the fascinating little creature. Oh, Mama puts every curl into a wee nightcap of its own when I go to bed, answered the child with a playful shake of the head. Larry thought this very droll. Isn't she cunning, he said, but what can she mean? Your mother puts your hair into a nightcap, cried Abby. Those are curl papers, I suppose. No, nightcaps, insisted the little one. That's the right name. The children puzzled over it for some time, but finally Aunt Kitty came to the rescue and explained that she rolled them on bits of muslin or cotton to give them the soft, pretty appearance which Abby so much admired, because Claire's father liked her to have curls, and the poor child's hair was naturally as straight as a pipe stem. Come and see our chapel, Claire, said Abby. The word oratory did not yet come trippingly to her tongue. Claire was delighted with the beautiful image and behaved as decorously as if she were in church. Afterward, the children took her to walk. They went into the park, in which there were many handsome flower pots, several fountains, and a number of fine pieces of marble statuary. Claire seemed to be much impressed with the latter. Oh my, she exclaimed, pointing to them reverently. Look at all the blessed virgins. The children laughed. She stood looking at them with a little frown, not having quite made up her mind whether to join in their mirth or to be vexed. When her mistake was explained to her, she said with a pout, Well, if they are not blessed virgins, then I don't care about them, and I'm going home. The children had promptly sent a note to Father Dominic, thanking him for his appropriate May Day gift. Each had a share in the composition of this acknowledgement, but it had been carefully copied by Abby. Later, they had the satisfaction of showing him the oratory. While Claire was with them, he happened to call again one evening just as the young people were saying goodnight. Larry, whispered Abby, when they went upstairs and she knelt with her brother and cousin before the little altar. Larry, let's say our prayers real loud, so Father Dominic will know how good we've got to be since we've had the lovely statue. All right, said Larry, obediently. They began. Abby leading off in clear, distinct accents, and Larry following in a heavy alto, for his voice was unusually deep and sonorous for such a little fellow. Baby Claire listened wonderingly, then, apparently making up her mind that the clamor was due to the intensity of their fervor, she joined with her shrill treble and prayed with all her might and main. To a certain extent, they succeeded in their object. The din of their devotions soon penetrated to the library where their friend Father Dominic was chatting with Mr. and Mrs. Clayton. In a few moments, the latter stepped quietly into the lower hall. Abby, she called softly. The little girl pretended not to hear and kept on. Abby, there was a decision in the tone which was not to be trifled with. What is it, mother? She asked with an assumption of innocence, breaking off so suddenly as to startle her companions. Not so loud, dear. You can be heard distinctly in the library. Abby and Larry snickered. Claire giggled without knowing why. Then Abby applied herself with renewed earnestness and volubility to the litany. She did not intend any disrespect. On the contrary, she meant to be very devout. But she not only believed in the injunction, let your light shine before men, but felt that it behooved her to attract Father Dominic's attention to the fact that it was shining. Clearer and higher rose her voice. Deeper and louder sounded Larry's. More shrilly piped Claire. Abby, called Mrs. Clayton again with grave displeasure. That will do. Children, go to your rooms at once. The others stole off without another word, but Abby lingered a minute. 
Father Dominic was going, and she could not resist the impulse to wait and learn what impression their piety had made. Leaning over the balusters, she saw him laughing in an amused manner. Then he said to her mother, Tell Abby she has a good, strong voice. I wish I could have her read the prayers for the sodality. She would surely be heard all over the church. He went away, and Abby crept upstairs with burning cheeks and an unpleasant suspicion that she had made herself ridiculous. Mrs. Clayton suspected that her little daughter had overheard the message. She therefore spared the children any reference to the subject. But the next time they met Father Dominic, he alluded, as if casually, to the devotions suitable for May, and then quite naturally went on to speak of the virtues of the Blessed Virgin, especially of her humility and love of retirement, saying how, although the mother of God, she was content to lead a humble, hidden life at Nazareth, with no thought or wish to proclaim her goodness from the housetops. The lesson was gently and kindly given, but Abby was shrewd enough and sufficiently well-disposed to understand. She felt that she was indeed learning a great deal during this month of Mary. About the middle of the month, there was a stir of pleasurable excitement at St. Mary's School. Suppose we get up a May drama among the younger pupils, suggested Marion Gaines, the leading spirit of the graduating class. The proposition was received with enthusiasm, and Mother Rosalie was applied to for permission. Yes, she answered. You have my consent to your plan, but on one condition, that you arrange the drama and drill the children yourselves. It will be good practice for you in the art of composition, and by teaching others, you will prove whether or not you have profited by Professor Willett's lessons in elocution. The graduates were delighted. That is just like Mother Rosalie, said Marion. She is willing to trust us and leaves us to our own resources, so that if we succeed, all the credit will be ours. Now we must draw up a plan. Shall we decide upon a plot, and then each work out a portion of it? Oh dear, I never could think of anything, declared one. I should not know how to manage the dialogue. My characters would be perfect sticks, added a second. I can't even write an interesting letter, lamented someone else. I respectfully suggest that Marion and Ellen be requested to compose the drama, said the first speaker, with mock ceremony. I agree with all my heart, cried one. And I, and I, chimed in the others. It is a unanimous vote, continued their spokesman, turning to the young ladies in question with a low bow. But we shall have all the work, objected Marion. No, we will take a double share at the rehearsals, and they will be no small part of the trouble. I'll do it if you will, Ellen, began Marion. I don't mind trying, agreed Ellen. Thus the matter was settled. Let us first select the little girls to take part in our drama. Marion continued. There's Annie Conwell, said one, and Lucy Carroll, interposed another. So they went on, till they had chosen ten or twelve little girls. As it is to be a May piece, of course we must have a queen, said Ellen. Yes, and let us have Abby Clayton for the queen, rejoined Marion. Abby is passably good-looking and rather graceful. Besides, she has a clear, strong voice and plenty of self-confidence. She would not be apt to get flustered. Annie Conwell now is a dear child, but perhaps she would be timid, and it would spoil the whole play if the queen should break down. After school, the little girls were invited into the graduates' classroom, and although not a word of the drama had yet been written, the principal parts were then and there assigned. Lucy Carroll was to have the opening address, Annie as many lines as she would undertake, and so on. Abby was delighted to find that she was chosen for the most prominent role. 
She ran all the way home and skipped gaily into the house and up to the sitting room where Mrs. Clayton was sewing. Oh, mother, she exclaimed, tossing off her hat and throwing her books upon the table. We are to have a lovely drama at our school, and I'm to be the May Queen. Next week, we close out Mayday Gift. Another delightful narrator joins us with some O. Henry, and we finally get a bit of fantasy swashbuckling. And you wouldn't believe just how many tries it took me to say swashbuckling correctly. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider checking out the Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so. Or leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us, I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Mayor Zine at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. And a very special thanks to my patrons for helping to fund the Mayor Zine. Dan Adler, Tammy Bulkeo, Richard, Miriam Rubin, and David Shore. You guys are awesome. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. All the music is licensed royalty-free from storyblocks.com. This production is copyright 2022 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.